Genre. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character in a great story, except when we don't. I'm Joe Dorowski, and this week we're discussing the Bechdel test and representation in media. And joining me for the discussion is returning guest, Kirsta Christensen. Welcome back, Kirsta. Hello. The Bechdel test, it's one of those things that has kind of taken on a life of its own. And I think people hear the term all the time, even if they don't necessarily get a good definition for it. So this is a brief test first introduced by Alison Bechdel. She developed the test in conversation with her friend Liz Wallace, and it was also inspired by the writings of Virginia Woolf. And it is meant as a quick assessment of the active presence of women in a given story. There are many variations of the test now. It's kind of taken on a life of its own, but the version I know best consists of three questions. Essentially, a text can get three points on the Bechdel test. The first question is, is there more than one woman with a name in the story? That would give a story a point. To get two points, those women need to have a conversation. And then to get three points, that conversation should not be about a man. <laughs> and so you you can, can give text, novels, films, uh, rankings of one through three, or well, I guess zero through three, because there's a disturbing number that will get to zero, where there's not even more than one woman with a name uh, in the story. Um, and like I said, it's kind of taken a life of its own. And you, Kirsta, asked if we could do a whole episode talking about this and also what it means for representation and why representation matters. So what inspired you to want to talk about this? Okay, so last summer, um, a film came out called Fire Island. And Fire Island is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice, but in a set in a um, in a community in an island where like a lot of gay men like to go on vacation on holiday. And then the main characters are also Asian. And if you know me, you know, I love Jane Austen and Pride and Prejudice. And I also love a good retelling. And so um, I was really excited for this film. But after it came out, there were some rumblings on the internet that the film did not pass the Bechdel test, which it doesn't. And, and, you know, I should say, pass failing usually it's like if you hit all three points you pass the Bechdel test and if you don't hit all three then you fail the Bechdel test mm-hmm. um and so yeah so this Roblox came out that this film did not pass the Bechdel test and was getting criticism for that and I thought my goodness if you think it's a problem that this film does not pass the Bechdel <laughs> test then you have completely misunderstood the point of the Bechdel test yep. um and so I thought it might be interesting to discuss that or at least like what it's specifically what it is and what it is for and what it is not for because i think people have a tendency to simplify it to like if you pass the bechdel test you have a good movie and if you fail the bechdel test you have a bad movie and i think that is a very um overly simplistic way of looking at it very reductive and all you know potentially even harmfully reductive way of looking at it yeah there are some texts that are undeniably feminist that will not pass the bechdel test in some instances mm-hmm. like notably the movie Gravity, which is entirely about Sandra Bullock floating in space mm-hmm. by herself, doesn't pass the Bechdel test because Sandra Bullock's the only character <laughs> in, in yes. the movie. Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, so if you have like, you know, one person, one person shows um, or shows that have one male character and one female character or, you know, a story that just that just has non-binary characters or a story that just has characters whose genders I never identified. Um, and, and, you know, for me, 
so so what this comes down to is diversity and representation in media um and the fact that if you look at all the people in the world you know you can divide them in a lot of different ways kind of demographically right so like race or ethnicity gender sexuality nationality age religion class geography disability immigrant status marital status right um but when we look at stories that get told so books movies tv shows plays songs we find that those stories tend to be um disproportionately skewed towards certain groups versus other groups Mm -hmm. so so we have a lot more films you know and and in terms of in terms of like the stories that get produced the stories that get the most funding the stories they get you know marketing um or that win really prestigious awards, um, you tend to have more male representation than female representation. And white people tend to be overrepresented. And straight cisgender people tend to be overrepresented. And English speakers, specifically native English speakers, um, people who are middle upper class, if people have a religion, usually it's Christian. And so um, we we don't, we, we tell the stories of those groups of people more than we tell the stories of other groups of people, despite the fact that, you know, for, for men and women, they're about equal numbers or, you know, globally, the people just aren't like represented the way they should be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the point of the Bechdel test, at least in my opinion, and another different kinds of tests is just to, is kind of the Bechdel test, especially is kind of a quick and dirty way to just say, hey, does this movie meet this particular bar or not? And then on the aggregate, you can say like, okay, you know, of all the movies that made a certain amount of money or of all the movies that had a certain budget or of all the movies that were eligible for awards or that won awards, which one of these had this, um, which one of these had this particular type of female representation and which one of them didn't. But the thing about Fire Island is that, um, it was, you know, they had, it, it was a cast that was like the main characters were Asian, which is really uncommon. And it was a cast where almost everyone in the cast was gay or queer um, in a landscape that's dominated by straight characters. And it was a cast where, um, where most of the people in it were like a lot of the main characters were working class or they were poor. And all of those are really unusual demographics to see in main characters and so that's actually like a really great progressive thing and so the fact that it didn't pass the Bechdel test the point is not that every single film needs to be like half men and half women or exactly racially diverse the point is that on the whole if we look at the whole basket of stories being told there should be stories you know, that represent all the people in the world who want to tell stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can absolutely have individual stories or like I was thinking about the film Hunt for Red October, which is a really fun film, um, a really enjoyable film that came out in the it's set in the 80s. I think it came out in the late 80s or early 90s. I was but it's also but, oh, yeah. I'm testing myself yeah. here. Let me go look. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, that sounds right. Um, but it's also set, you know, oh, it was almost 90. entirely. 
yeah, almost entirely on the crews of Russian submarines and American submarines, which were entirely male at the time. And so it's a it's a film that has, even by the standards of American films, has very, very, very little female representation. And the point is not, oh, we cannot possibly produce, you know, fun action films like Hunt for Red October. The point is we are not we we are only telling those stories about men or about majority white men and we're not doing anything equivalent with majority female casts so we're just kind of you know we're kind of biased towards that um yeah and so and so i think there's a tendency to be like passing the bechdel test is good failing the bechdel test is bad when really it's just one tool to measure a landscape um among many tools and you know fire island was such a was such a fun and interesting film um it certainly shouldn't have come under fire for not passing the Bechdel test. That was just kind of a ridiculous critique. In my yeah. Opinion. And I think there's also um, a defensiveness that some people have when people start to like raise issues like the Bechdel test. Uh, so like I teach American literature, I talk about issues with the canon that there is a fairly large issue that for a long time, the canon uh, for a number of reasons featured exclusively white men. And those reasons are like historical uh, economic, like historically economic driven reasons at times who was allowed access to publications, who was not, uh, you know, th things like that. And I talk about the need to expand the canon. And sometimes I feel like there's a little pushback, like, so are we getting rid of Hemingway or Mark Twain or Fitzgerald? Yeah. I'm like, we're, we're not saying we're getting rid of anyone. We're saying yeah. we're expanding to include more voices, uh, yeah. you know, with, within uh, what constitutes great stories that have been told mm -hmm. by humans about humans. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, because like, it, it's sort of like, you know, if you moved into a town and started meeting your neighbors and discovered that, you know, one of your neighbors had one boy and one of them had two boys and one had three boys and one had, you know, but every single person you talk to, you you meet a hundred of your neighbors and they only have boys, none of them have girls. And you're not going to point to any one of them and be like, your boy shouldn't exist. Mm -hmm. But after that many people, you're going to be like, there's a problem here. Like something <laughs> is happening to affect things, right? Like, like statistically, this should not be happening, you know there are missing girls and again we're not you know i know plenty of families in real life that have all boys or all girls and even larger families with all boys or all girls i'm like that's fine you know one's critiquing that family for existing but we're just saying statistically if that's the only thing you see there's a problem at some point where you know there's i mean i don't this is like a science fiction world i don't know what would actually be happening to the boys or the girls but but you know if i'm sure there's a star trek episode again, with this premise right exactly <laughs> exactly yeah you know if if um yeah or there's you know or it's a or it's a post-apocalyptic science fiction episode or something where you know again like there are really great stories that are told that are you know majority male or majority white or majority straight or able-bodied but like we can tell those stories and still tell different stories as well. And it doesn't take away from anything. Um, it's just that right now the landscape is such that we are artificially biased in, in terms of, you know, a very, very small demographic instead of all of the possibilities and varieties of stories we could be telling. All right. I'm going to jump in with just a little bit of trivia about the Bechtel test and its history. Go for it. So this first appeared in Alison Bechdel's comic strip called Dykes to Watch Out For, which she published um, weekly for, it was like 25 years, I think it is. Wow. Um, and she took a break to finish one of her graphic novels, and then she actually popped back in with, uh, with a few more uh, instances of it. And 
this is inspired by, like I said earlier, a conversation with her friend, um, Liz Wallace. So she prefers to call it the Bechdel Wallace test. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that fight has been lost. <laughs> yes. Um, it is, it is simply ironically and sadly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Alice Bechtel is the writer and artist behind the critically acclaimed graphic novels Fun Home and Are You My Mother, as well as that long-running comic strip. Fun Home was adapted into a Broadway musical, and it won five Tony Awards in 2015 wow. for Best Musical, Best Direction, Best Book, Best Score, and Best Actor. Uh, and Jake Gyllenhaal's production company optioned the rights to make a film adaptation of it, and he's planning to play a character in, hmm. in that um, and Bechtel has won an Eisner Award, won, been awarded a MacArthur Genius Grant, received several other awards. Um, like in, in, if you do comic studies, like Bechtel's name is going to come up uh, for, for sure. And now it's become synonymous with this. Um, I, I don't want to call it like a feminist test, but it's a test of like representation of women. And it's a really low bar to clear for most yes. texts. Um like my favorite example when I talk about this in class is like the movie Frozen features two girls that say, hey, do you want to build a snowman in the first like 45 seconds of the film? Boom. You've passed the Bechdel <laughs> test. That is all it I takes. I don't know. Is, is the snowman male? <laughs> <laughs> it's, not, it's not a living creature when they talk about it. They just want okay, to know. <laughs> no. uh, but like that level of writing to ensure that kind of conversations happens at some point is all it would take for everything to pass the Bechdel test. But there are so many things that don't pass the yeah. Bechdel test. Like famously, the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy fails the Bechdel test. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, the, yeah. Uh, and, and that's a fair point that it's it's more significant to fail it than it is to pass it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, failing it is like getting an F in a class. Passing it is like getting at least a D minus or possibly higher, but you don't really know. So it's not like if you pass it, this is obviously a, you know, a film that has amazing representation. It's sort of like the minimal squeaking by. um, And then, yeah. And then failing it is, is pretty significant. Yeah. Like um, from at the time promoted himself as a feminist though in retrospect maybe we all should have been more suspicious of this yeah. joss whedon's the avengers doesn't pass the yes. Bechdel test mm-hmm. um you know one of the the biggest films of the last 10 years uh in that instance um but he, uh, and, and again like this is not a perfect test because um mm-hmm. we've we've you and i have talked uh, or mentioned a couple times the film arrival which i think is a beautiful film but apparently doesn't pass the Bechdel test but i think it's just because there's mm-hmm. so few characters that yeah speak <laughs> you know in the film it's basically uh amy adams and jeremy renner and a handful mm-hmm. of other characters but it's, it's just such a small cast that it doesn't pass it and and so it's it's not you're like perfect oh you're good if you pass you're you're bad if you fail yes. and particularly like yes. you've already noted like it makes perfect sense that if you're telling like a are setting a film in a particular battle in world war one or world war two it's probably not going to pass the bechdel test mm-hmm. right you know and and that's yeah. fine for the you know telling that story in that setting it's just on mass when you start to look at the numbers of stories that fail or, or tv shows and novels that come out and movies that come out that right. are going to fail the bechdel test where you start to say okay Maybe there's something more. And if you if you can look at a specific film and say, well, okay, I understand why The Arrival or why Saving Private Ryan, uh, you know, yeah. doesn't pass the Bechtel test. And we're not saying that those are bad films. It's just 
the consistency with which films are produced and made uh, with an assumption of like default male whiteness <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of characters uh, in a lot of instances. That's where you start to maybe raise an eyebrow. Yeah. And, and it's also worth saying, you know, women were doing things during World War mm-hmm. One and World War Two and the Cold War. Um, and the space race and, has and always women, hidden figures, right? <laughs> yeah. And women were doing things in, you know, majority female spaces. And yet we just don't value those spaces um, or the stories in those spaces as much as we tend to value the stories told in those overwhelmingly male spaces. Or we make excuses for it of like, oh, well, you know, like we don't actually have to make three stories about World War II every year. <laughs> You know, there are other things we could talk about. And yet, you know, there are various reasons on the cultural landscape that we do. Um, But part of that does reinforce, you know, a particular type of masculinity and a particular type of storytelling. Um, So so this year at the Oscars, there was a film called Women Talking that was nominated for an Oscar. And even just the, I think it was for screenplay that it was nominated. And the screenwriter was talking about even just on social media or in passing because it, because it wasn't a film that got like a ton, a ton of attention. So a lot of people were maybe the first time they were hearing of it was, was because it had not been nominated for an Oscar and the casual sort of like, Oh, women talking. That sounds like a terrible film. Like, like anytime, you know, anytime a big account talked about it on, on Twitter or in social media, like the casual misogynistic responses that are just like, like literally, why would I want to go watch a film called women talking? Um, which were, were just so sad and like, you know, not necessarily surprising because that is the kind of misogyny, but the fact that like a, a film whose title was literally just about, you know, expressed that it was about women talking to each other and the fact that so many people thought it was completely fine to just be like, that sounds terrible by definition, you know, mm-hmm. how many films could be summarized as men talking and yet, you know, you don't have, you don't have that same response. Yeah, I saw the uh, screenwriter say, like, 12 Angry Men is considered a classic film. There's a movie called Band of Brothers. Does anyone care that there's a movie called Band of – or I guess a TV miniseries called Band of Brothers? Uh Does that raise anyone's eyebrows? Nope. Yep. (laughs) Does the screenwriter get any pushback? Oh, it's just all men doing manly things? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's just not – you know, and you might still have individuals who think that's boring, but it's not the same kind of – it's it's not the same. It's that it's it's an individual response. It's not the same kind of social like oh that must be, you know. It's it's, it's so completely normalized that we can just joke about how terrible it is. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Another thing with the Bechdel test I like is to figure out like when in a film the film passed the Bechdel test. So like you said, Frozen. You know, if the very first line that anyone says passes the Bechdel test, versus like like or, or you can flip the Bechdel test to talk about okay, like when do two men have a conversation with each other that isn't about a woman, and and that might be like in the first five minutes, and then maybe it passes the Bechdel test, but it passes it at like minute one hundred and five or something, and that tells you something about the film. You know, if it if we establish our male characters right away and then it takes us, you know, three quarters of the film to establish our female characters, that also says something about um, about the kind of representation. Yeah. And uh, also, I think it's interesting when there's 
like long running franchises and there's like the complaints that they're going woke or whatever, but you can look at like a franchise that's had iterations in different eras uh, and mm-hmm. say like, okay, well now they're, they're almost always passing this. Whereas like Star Trek in the 1960s probably didn't pass yeah. it terribly frequently um, sure. unless Uhura and nurse chapel talk to each other uh, <laughs> because they were our named female characters on the crew of the yes. enterprise. And most often they were running into male aliens out in space. Um, so well, unless I guess I, I shouldn't or, also note unless William Shatner was going to have a romantic interest right. in a particular episode. <laughs> um, um, but uh, but like the the current stuff on Paramount Plus that Star Trek's been putting out, which I I haven't watched any of it, but like just look at the images. I'm like, okay, that yeah, you know, they've changed the game <laughs> there. Yeah, and and it's interesting. Um, you know, the Beckel test is so is is so widely mentioned that it's actually um it's actually a i don't know how to say this it's um it's a property of films in wikidata so like wikidata is sort of the structured data version of of wikipedia and it just and there's just a little line where you can say does this film pass the bechdel test um and it's and it's considered to be so well known and so and and in most cases relatively uncontroversial you know you have like a few borderline cases where like it's really up to interpretation if it passes or not but most films pretty clearly pass it or don't um but then you can actually run really interesting interesting to some people at least um interesting kinds of of you know queries because you can like say okay you know how many films that came out in 1997 passed the Bechdel test how many films that came out in 1957 passed the Bechdel test um so it's interesting that it's so well established that it's just like a property there along with you know the name of the director and the year that it came out and the length of the film um it's considered a fact related to the film not just not just a not just um a more qualitative analysis of the film Oh, interesting. Yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at like some recent films to see how they do. And it's like uh, Avatar, the way of water apparently does not pass according to Mm -hmm. the people who put in this information. Again, I've not seen that one, so I cannot confirm nor deny uh, (laughs) uh, that one. Um, But uh, the Batman does. Uh, And so it's, you know, it's even films that feel very male centric, like the Batman, you know, it's, it's not a difficult thing (laughs) to do. If you were telling um, a, a story in a, in a world where women exist, it shouldn't be Mm -hmm. hard (laughs) to to pass this test. (laughs) Yeah. And a, and a friend of mine, so a slightly different approach, but a friend of mine who had wrote and who had written a few screenplays, um, had heard once that like, and I, and I can't remember what subset this was, but it's something that like women in some subset of films, you maybe it's like wide release films or, or the most popular films or whatever, only have 16% of this, of the spoken lines of dialogue, mm-hmm. um, 15 or 60%. So that's like 85% male. And so he decided to write a screenplay specifically that had women speaking as many lines of dialogue as men did and so he was going through trying to keep it average and then he read it and he's like oh no i've i've overcompensated i've you know i've got women dominating it and then he went back and counted and no it was equal he'd done what he intended to do but he was so used to women only taking up you know like 15 percent of the space that that having women take up actually half of the space felt like you know felt like women were completely dominating the conversation um and I've, I've heard similar things, although I can't point to any studies 
right now at the top of my head about women like in, like speaking in real life if you have a class that's full of like half women and half men and if women make 50% of the comments actually the men and women in the class will say that women are dominating the conversation because mm-hmm. psychologically we've come to adjust that and expect women to speak proportionately it's less an Elizabeth Airy study <laughs> sorry what uh, Elizabeth Aries did a study oh, yeah. uh, yes. uh, um, about men and women in college discussion groups. Yes. Yes. And as, and as a college professor, you are probably that that's probably more relevant to some of your day-to-day experiences, trying to make sure that you're having balanced discussions versus uh, those of yes, us who. Though I will note that uh, because I, I teach in humanities, my classes tend to be female, like just a large number of women, women than men. Uh, in sure. the class, like I, in some of my smaller classes, I've had entirely women, uh, you know, in the, in the class. Yeah. Well, of I guess, course, I, guess, I will naturally dominate the discussion. Be, you know, yes. Uh, I, I guess you have entirely women, uh, <laughs> right. Then, then, you know, by definition, it's going to be women talking. But you can still have a situation where you have, you know, maybe your class is ten percent male, but men are talking twenty five percent of the time, or something like that. Yeah. Um. I think there was uh another study. I'm trying to find it right now. Let's see. Okay. Barbara Jean Eakins recorded seven university okay. faculty meetings and found that men spoke more often and without exception longer than the women. Uh, but the impression yeah. is often that women are speaking more than men at these meetings. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting too. It's not just men who think that women are speaking longer, but it's also women who think that women are speaking longer. Um, so it's, you know, so they're both, psychologically prepped to, you know, to think that women are supposed to speak a certain amount. Um, and it's less than, you know, it's less than their proportional representation. So yeah, it's interesting stuff. Yeah. And I think some of these socialized expectations for who will speak up for how long and when it starts to feel intrusive do come from the media that we consume. Like some of our framework, Mm -hmm. our mental framework for what social interactions look like do come about because of the books we read, the TV shows we watch and the movies we go see. And yeah. when those are so clearly and statistically and like not just theorizing, but like raw evidence dominated yeah. by men in all these speaking roles, um, even though we say we're resisting viewers and that's absurd, it's not going to affect me. It does affect our framework mm-hmm. as we step out into into interactions and social interactions. Yeah. Yeah. No, if um, I, I, um, I was talking to a coworker about the film the secret of Kells, the animated film, mm-hmm. um, which is a beautiful, beautiful animated film. Have you seen it? No, but I know of it because it's been recommended to me several times. I just haven't gotten around to watching it. <laughs> yeah. so, so it's set in like an Irish monastery and it's about, you know, illumination and stuff. Um, but at one point these Vikings come and they like raid the monastery and they're very scary. And, um, and the animation is very, it's very stylized so they're just they're just drawn in this very like scary menacing way right um which, but then like the first time i watched that like i have you know a scandinavian last name and like i'm a many many generation american but i still sort of you know when i see scandinavians or when i see vikings or whatever I'm like those are my people and it was literally the first time i had ever seen scandinavians like negatively portrayed in media and so um 
And and I also like at the same time was very aware of issues of like, you know, of like people from the Middle East talking about like, why are we always terrorists in, in films or other like non-white groups talking about like, why are we all gangbangers? Why are we all, you know, like like the kind of stereotypes in casting. And so I also had enough enough perspective to be like, okay, if this is literally the first time you have ever seen like your ethnic group portrayed negatively, it's because you are very privileged in terms of your ethnic group and representation. Um, and mostly I just thought it was funny that I was just like, hey, why are you being mean to the Scandinavians? Right. <laughs> they did pillage your, you know, your monastery. But um, but yeah, it absolutely does affect you, you know, to the point that the one time in my life that that, that particular ethnic group that I've seen them portrayed negatively, I still remember it. It. Um, and, and, you know, it hasn't even happened that often. Um, so yeah, it absolutely gets into your, into your psyche and affects you. And, and that's why representation matters so much and good representation yeah. matters. And again, Alison Bechdel's test isn't even really saying anything about like the, the quality of the characters, <laughs> you know, are they or, good people yeah. or bad people? Yeah. Uh, are they, are they, uh, you know, their morality or the, even their gentleness in their story? Are they just mm-hmm. like pawns being moved around by the men in the story? It does not mention any of that. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, I think that simplicity of it, it should be an even greater warning sign of like how, how many films are failing <laughs> and, and mm-hmm. novels and TV shows are failing the Bechdel test because it, it is making no moral judgment. It's just like, do these kinds of characters exist in this story? Yeah. Um, and, uh, when so it, it like, it, sh- it feels like it should be the default that things are going to pass <laughs> the Bechdel test. Right. And yeah. I think it yeah. is definitely getting better. Uh, there's some statistical trends about increased representation that is absolutely happening uh, in the mm-hmm. media that we consume. But think about for how long it took us to start to see some of those trends of improvement too. It's like, yeah. oh man, we, <laughs> that's an awful long time that we were just uh, making films with kind of default male points of view. Uh, mm-hmm. And and I, I'm sure it's still the majority of films. I'm not trying to say we've we've reached equality of 50 50 uh, male-centered versus female-centered films (laughs) yeah um yeah and then you know and then even when you make progress on on one dimension okay are we just making films about white women or just making films about white able-bodied women or Mm -hmm. white able-bodied english-speaking American, you know, like, like it's, there's always, there are always other dimensions and and other ways of looking at things um, that we are, (laughs) where there's still work to do. (laughs) Yeah, I I still remember when um, Rogue One came out. Uh, the Star Wars Rogue One, that uh, a woman did a Twitter thread. Um, I mean, at this point, I won't say Twitter, rest in peace, but it feels like it's imminent that we Aww. may never be able to find these kind of Twitter threads again. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> she did a Twitter thread about um, taking her dad, and she, she's, she said she's Mexican-American, and she took her dad, and like in the movie theater, he started grabbing her and saying, like, he has an accent. They didn't make him get rid of his accent. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and so like we're talking about like all these facets of representation. It could be something as simple mm-hmm. as... Does the character of color, are they allowed to, like, yeah, he's speaking English, but is he allowed to speak English with any accent at all? Um, yes. The, yes. And it mattered so much to her dad to see mm-hmm. uh, a Latino actor that was speaking with, with an accent because that's who he saw, you know, in his everyday life and who he saw himself right. as. And he, he's, right. uh, again, we've increased representation. He's seen lots of Latino men, uh, uh, you know, now, but very often, uh, very frequently, they're, they're, um, kind of Americanized to the point where uh, some of those cultural markers are removed. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, you know, or the issues with, um, with 
with uh, media being made into films, but then Asian characters get turned into white characters mm-hmm. um, or or white characters supposedly have some Asian ethnicity, which I didn't realize this, but there's some, I can't remember what it is now, but there's some, I can't remember if it's like a union rule or something, or maybe it's just like posting anyway, but there's some rule that if, if a, if a, um, if a role is posted, the actor who plays it has to share some ethnicity with the role. Um, and that's to prevent, you know, things like blackface. Emma Stone get cast in the... <laughs> so, okay, so here's the situation. The character that Emma Stone was playing was supposed to be mixed race. So she supposedly has native Hawaiian ancestry and white ancestry. So Emma Stone herself being white did share some ethnicity. It this was the just Aloha. the white ethnicity. Yeah. <laughs> so she could not have played a character who was supposed to be, you know, completely native Hawaiian or okay. completely Asian. Um, but, um, but yeah, she's still controversially and she's actually apologized for it. Um, yeah. played a character who supposedly had native Hawaiian ancestry, which is, that's really problematic. Um, or, you know, or like in Dr. Strange where the character where, um, um, what is her name? Um, America oh, Chavez. Who plays, like, sorry, who? America Chavez. No, no, no. Dr. Strange. Um, the first film, oh, the first one. Yes. Um, oh, uh, when uh, I know who you mean, it's uh, Irish. Yes, yes. Um, so, so oh, I think she name? was. I know. I can't believe I can't remember her name. She's a very famous actress. Yes, I'm looking it up now. Um, uh, Tilda Swinton. Yes, Tilda Swinton. Yes, was cast as a well. They they changed the character to be like Irish instead of asian i forget if she was tibetan more specifically um so you know they did not cast her as a tibetan person but they still changed and and i really liked tilda swinton and i thought she was really good in that film but also in the comic book that was an asian character and they made the character white Um, right but i mean in this instance marvel was desperately trying to avoid accusations of orientalism because let's just say the history of that character in marvel comics from the 1960s not always carefully presented (laughs) And, you know, and it's funny, that's its own issue where, um, you know, what if you do something really racistly for a long time? I mean, you know, because, yeah, because the, the right thing to do would have been to have non-racist character, you know, a diverse cast, but non-racist caricatures. And then when you turn it into a movie, you keep that diverse cast and have non-racist caricatures. But that was not available to them because they had already had historically racist caricatures yes. of character um so yeah that can that can get I, a bit thorny when you're trying to untangle that um, yes and, i, I and, completely understand the frustration that some people had with that casting but i also understand yeah. why marvel was like i don't want to do an ancient mystical asian man that right. feels like a stereotype and also i kind of feel like um you know if there were tons of really great roles that year for you know, Asian and Asian American actors in big budget films, the fact that they had maybe changed one character might not have been a big deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of like, you know, sort of like if a character is blonde in a book and then brunette in a movie, you don't really have a huge outcry, right? Because, right. you know, there are plenty of roles for blonde actresses. Um, but, you know, because, you already have so it's it's kind of like when you already have so few opportunities um 
for some actors to get cast in things, then when it feels like another, you know, another character is being taken away, then it just kind of compounds that. And so, yeah, so I can see why people, yeah. why people would feel frustrated. And Marvel changed the character of Wong from the comics pretty significantly into the Doctor Strange film, f- Strange films, but kept him Asian. Um, right. In, in, like in the comics, he's explicitly Doctor Strange's manservant and a subservient oh, to him. <laughs> 1960s, different time. Yeah. Uh, but, but they wanted to, and they've made the character really interesting with all the, like he's become like the cross pollination of the MCU now uh, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways for the live action version, but it's a pretty big departure from the 1960s Doctor Strange stories that inspired the yeah. franchise. Yeah. I was actually reading a, this is a different thing entirely, but I was reading a book by Zach Cruz about Steve Ditko, who created Doctor Strange for Marvel. And Zach reached out to Steve Ditko and asked, in your mind, was Doctor Strange Asian? Because the way you draw him looks similar enough to the ancient one who is explicitly Asian that I kind of think mm-hmm. Doctor Strange might have been an Asian character that when mm-hmm. other artists took over, they uh, made him more Caucasian. Sure. And Steve Ditko just replied, I think my stories stand for themselves. <laughs> he was Not Steve Dicko, no, notably prickly about fan questions sure. of, of, of sure. his art. Uh, it's yeah. just a, a facet of him. But what, what, after I read that, I went and pulled out my reprint of Dr. Strange number one. I'm like, you know what? I think, I think Zach Cruz might be right, <laughs> yeah. but I'm so used to the subsequent artistic portrayals of Dr. Strange right. that never crossed my right. mind. Uh, to yeah. that, and there's nothing in the text that explicitly says one way or the other. You know, is this a Caucasian yeah. character or an Asian character? I think readers just would have defaulted to assuming Caucasian character because of the issues of representation that we're talking about right now. And then there's also the issue of of um, you know, looking Asian or looking white because it's possible to, you know, be of mixed heritage and mm-hmm. not necessarily. You know, to have like Asian heritage or indigenous heritage or black heritage, but to pass for white. And then that's even kind of complicated because, you know, you can have, I mean, there are people in the world who regularly pass for white, who do not identify as white and do not, you know, and have a lot of heritage that's not white. And then like, so, so even, you know, even if you're drawing someone in a comic book as looking white, that doesn't necessarily mean that they are white. Oh, and, um, and then it's so, also, I mean, kind of like why Marvel recast Tilda Swinton. For some artists, yeah. like you got to be so careful not to lean into stereotypes, which many artists were not careful about for a very long time in their depictions of non-white characters and mm-hmm. uh, and stereotypes. Even like some very famous, significant artists, when you look back at some of their the ways they drew black characters, you're like, oh, I wish I wish you'd been more careful. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and not leaned into these uh, minstrel show stereotype portrayals of mm-hmm. African Americans. Yeah. Yep. Everyone do better. Everyone go back in time and do better. <laughs> yes. And well, and, and why we have these conversations now, which I know there's always people who are like, oh, why are we always talking about this? It's so that we do better. <laughs> it's because yeah. we haven't been great. Yeah. <laughs> We're yeah, still not doing uh, excellently in terms of right. things like the Bechdel test. Uh, right. And the more it gets talked about, the more writers will just take the time to even add a single scene to make sure I'm going to pass the Bechdel test on this one. And uh, you know, that's such a low bar to clear, but as they do that, yeah. then the bar hopefully will get raised. It's like, okay, you know what? I'm going to have two fully fleshed out female characters with motivations mm-hmm. <laughs> this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or, you know, or there are also people who will like count the number of lines of dialogue. I, I think I saw some, some infographic that was like the number of lines of dialogue between men and women in like the Oscar winning the best film of the year. And it was so slanted towards men, probably even more than you know the averages. 
um, which is a lot of work to go through. I mean, it's much more work to go through and do that than it is to just figure out if something passes the Bechdel test. But, you know, the more people do that, um, the more, you know, if you know that you're going to get called out for producing this kind of film or producing only these kinds of films or nominating only these kinds of films, um, then, you know, then the more conscious you are to try to, um, to try to cast a wider net or to try to, you know, produce a, a better, better media in the first place. So, yeah, it was after um, a campaign that was called Oscars So White that yes. was pointing <laughs> out that Oscars tended to nominate uh, films by white creators that told white stories uh, yeah. that the nominating committee expanded its base and said, OK, mm -hmm. you know, we're going to have more people vote from more diverse points of view. Um which is again, it's not to say that the white the films made by those white creators with a white point of view are bad. <laughs> it's to yeah. say, yeah. Have, have we been limited in the kinds of stories that uh, we recognize? Have we been limited in mm -hmm. what we say is an appealing kind of story? And right. so, how, how can we how can we transform that? And one way is just through like choosing to expose ourselves to different points of view and stories from different mm -hmm. creators. It will naturally increase empathy as we see these human stories told with people uh, or characters that we don't naturally interact with in our daily lives because of the city that we grow up in because of yeah. you know whatever it may be um there was a uh, on i heard ken jennings talk recently about this um sight and sound poll you know where they they mm -hmm. poll directors about their 10 best films or 10 most important films i can't remember how they phrase mm -hmm. it um but they said uh, he was talking about how sometime in the poll around the early 2000s they only do it every 10 years they started to realize these are all, you know, outside of Kurosawa. <laughs> we are only recognizing yeah. films from white directors and and white male directors. And uh, as the kind of like recognition of that and discussion of that went up, you saw more diversity in the next wave of uh, of sight and sound polls, and and even more in the next one after that. And I saw someone like critiquing, like, oh, you know, art should just stand on its own. It doesn't matter who made it. Why does anyone care mm -hmm. if it was from a, a male director or a female director? Um, but I I think the sight and sound poll was probably overly represented of male voters that were going to yeah. be submitting ballots. And we tend to privilege stories that feel resonant to us and our point of view. Yeah. Uh, and again, the, one of the great things about art and why it is so important to have good stories being told in film and television and novels is that exposure to other kinds of stories is going to uh, make us, you know, see those resonances in other people's stories besides our own point of view. Mm -hmm. And I think that increase that we see in this in the sight and sound poll isn't just that they're choosing to be more mindful of it. It's because they chose to be more mindful of it once they start to appreciate other stories that they hadn't appreciated before. Yes, yes. And it's not um, the thing about our standing on its own is that there are so many steps between having an idea and getting that idea to an audience. And it's ridiculous to say that the playing field is level at all those steps because it's not yeah. and so um yeah and so by the time a film you know is is eligible for an oscar or you know or considered part of the canon or whatever um there have been a dozen or a couple dozen steps where the artistic merit was not the only thing considered and so all you're getting is this is this sort of laundered list at the end um also frankly we tend to be biased in favor of things that are similar to us and yep. so the great directors are all white men and if they got all, all get asked what the great films are they're also films by white men like that's just human beings having a hard time seeing past their own limitations 
um, I I'm on I'm on hiring committees every now and then at work, and they and they go through a list of biases every single time to be really careful of. And one of them is people who have something in common with you that is actually not germane to the job. So like, did they go to your same high school? You know, if you meet someone, I'm like, oh my goodness, you're, you know, you are also whatever our mascot was. Um, That's a fun point of reference, but probably it's not germane to the actual job you're hiring them for. And so you have to be really careful about that because as human beings, we just naturally gravitate towards that in ways, you know, in, in, in ways that are, maybe neutral in a social setting, but can be actively harmful in other settings. Um, and there's a reason that they go over it every single time because it's just, you know, it's just how, um, it's just how we're wired and it's just, and it's not something you're going to get rid of naturally. It's something that you have to kind of actively be aware of and then actively choose to work against. Yeah. And when you're talking about like all those gatekeepers that prevent or, or that have to be passed before a story is told for a wider audience, mm-hmm. um, oftentimes there's going to be these economic considerations. Like, uh, you know, someone's is looking at it is like, has this kind of story sold well in the past? Has it earned yes. a profit? Yes. Uh, and there, um, because there's such a greater number of stories with white and male characters at the center, they can point to so many success stories with that. Yeah. And, I mean, there are also plenty of failures, but they they can find success stories to justify telling mm-hmm. that story this next time. And there's yeah. fewer samples, uh, you know, a much smaller sample size yeah. for um, uh, films with uh, that whole list that you did at the beginning, <laughs> you know, different yes. points of view, yes. all the things that yes. can affect how, how we, um, how, how we see a film. And if, some of those or the most recent of those maybe were not as much of a financial success. You may get notes to change some characters' identities, to yeah. uh, to tweak the ending in some way, to ensure mm-hmm. that some character has a positive portrayal uh, in mm-hmm. the hopes that this is going to increase the profitability. And as you noted, it's not about the artistic merit of yeah. whatever the original script is. It's like for a company, are we going to spend a million dollars? And yeah. I, I think that's not an invalid concern <laughs> for companies mm-hmm. to say, sure. uh, are we going to invest at this point for a movie budget, tens of millions of dollars, most likely to make yeah. a story. We would like to see a return on that. Uh, mm-hmm. And we would love to say that all of this is just about the, uh, you know, the strength of the narrative or the compelling use of the characters or how well the director can tell the story. And it's just not uh, for, for particularly for big budget. Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I remember, I think it was when crazy rich Asians came out, there's some people going around saying like, you have to see it in the theater. Be sure to go support it. Even if you're not sure if you're going to like it, you know, you have to go see it. Otherwise they won't make more films like this. Um, and I think we were just coming off of a superhero film. Maybe it was, maybe it was the first Batman V Superman release that had done very poorly. And I remember thinking like, you know, you're probably not wrong that if lots of people go see crazy rich Asians, it will pave the way for more Asian or Asian American focused films. But you know, Batman v Superman just tanked, and it's not like we're saying, well, we can't make any more films with two white male leads. I guess like, we're done with Batman movies. Not going to make any more right, of those. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we can't. Not we even can't white male any- leads. Just like specifically these characters. Are we going to see them again? Yeah, within right. several years, you'll see both of them. <laughs> or we can't have, you know, young, attractive white men. I guess, I guess we, I guess without well, a bust. So, um, so yeah, you know, I understand, I understood the logic and they're probably right, but it was also just very frustrating to be like, you oh, know, white, other movie which is white. are we done with those stories? No. Yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is why sometimes I feel like being the first person to do something 
you know, like if you're like the first black woman astronaut or the first, you know, female vice president or whatever, like it can be such a double edged sword because what you really want is to be the second or third so that you're not defined just by being the first so that you can be, you know, one of a smaller class, but still kind of starting to define the class instead of like having the weight of everything of all the representation on your shoulders. Right. Mm hmm. Yeah, I think that is um, it, it's unfair what the pressure that gets put on to uh, the, the, the storytellers of uh, yeah. these underrepresented groups. Um, and like, I didn't even I can't, I'm trying to remember the name of it. Uh, didn't Billy Eichner make a, a, a gay rom-com? Yes. Uh, and uh, it, it didn't do particularly well. And yeah. he you could tell the way that he reacted. He was feeling that strain and that weight of. Mm-hmm. That that if this movie doesn't do well, we're not going to be able to tell these stories again for yeah. a long time. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And uh, he maybe was not the most graceful <laughs> I've ever seen someone be in in uh, accusations that he threw out yeah. about the failure yeah. of this film. But at the same time, I understand that he's not just talking about this one story that I told. Mm-hmm. Um, right. He's feeling such a a, a bigger weight um, on right. that, and it it just isn't fair. Uh, like how many, uh, you know directors can point to that had uh you know a a flop or something but they're going to get another chance uh mm-hmm. to tell a similar kind of story again at some point in their careers and he's kind of feeling like i don't know if i or anyone else will be able to tell the story again for a decade yeah 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 mm-hmm. well uh any final thoughts about the bechdel test and representation in general before we wrap up this um, episode um the bechdel test is a tool <laughs> but it is not the ultimate definition of if a movie is good or bad. And if you truly care about good art, then you should fight against what the culture is serving you, which is the same thing over and over again, and look for things that are outside of that demographic box. Uh, because there's a lot of really great stuff out there that just doesn't get marketed as well or may not come across your social media feed because of your own demographics um and, <laughs> and by marketed as well you know. mean a hundred million dollar but marketing budget which yes uh, yes is a standard marketing budget for big films <laughs> right right might be a little bit less than that <laughs> uh yeah and uh, again i would just say don't weaponize these conversations <laughs> in any direction of saying, oh, it failed the Bechdel test, so it must be awful, or it passed mm-hmm. the Bechdel test, so it must be good. Or when we're talking about these kinds of representation and issues, it doesn't mean that things from before are bad. It means let's expand right. the the space for art to be made. Yeah. Sometimes uh, things are bad. You know, yeah. sometimes you have things that are like actively sexist and racist, but like mm-hmm. we can tell stories about all different kinds of groups of people and that's great. Um we just should not ignore, you know, 99% of the world in favor of telling stories about the same 1% of the world over and over again. Yeah, it's it's like the Virginia Woolf question of, like, if Shakespeare had a sister, would we even know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if she was as talented as Shakespeare, would we, like, we would just not have had any of those stories because they would have been yeah. denied the chance to, to yeah. tell those stories. Uh, and like like i say to like my american lit students when we're talking about expanding the canon it's not saying twain is bad hemingway is bad fitzgerald is mm-hmm. bad we got to get rid of them it's like whose stories maybe were not respected when they were first published and we can go back and say you know what there's something here that's really interesting or whose voices can we ensure are allowed to be shared with us now mm-hmm. 
All right, that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. We'd like to thank Scott Tofty, who composed our theme music. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back next week to discuss another great character and a great story. So long. Bye-bye. See if Andrew is right here right now, or if I need to text him to stop the recording. It's always a fun moment <laughs> when he's not on the actual episode. <laughs>